Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 50, with our, ho- our co-host today, Tom Libby. And we are covering, as you can see on the video, Black Indian Slave Narratives by Patrick Mingus. Now, this is not sort of a classical uh, book, but it is a narrative collection. And I'll talk a little bit about how this has come together today on the podcast and um, talk a little bit about what leaders can learn from these narratives. Um, Spoken to uh, real uh, recorders of anthropological data um, in the 1930s um, in order to um, understand and to document lived history. Uh, lived experiences that people actually went through um, who, well, who were Black, who were, uh, in some cases, uh, Indians, and who were all um, either uh, slaves or ex-slaves in the border states during the American Civil War. Of course, we're covering this book as part of our uh, nod to Black History Month this month, and you should go back and listen to our episode with... um, with uh, Dorolo Nixon uh, covering W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, Souls of Black Folk, as well as Booker T. Washington's um, Up From Slavery. By the way, I said episode number 50. It is episode number 50 in chronological order, but we've done like 133 of these podcast episodes or something like that. So like with bonuses and everything else. So we're we're well in, but if you're chronologically following along, this is only episode number fifty. So, uh, so yeah, you're you're still early on into the uh, you're still early on into the game. So, from Black Indian Slave Narratives by Patrick Mingus, uh, this is from the narrative covering uh, the words of a gentleman named Moses Moses Lanian. Moses Lanian was interviewed in Venida, Oklahoma, by WPA field worker James R. Uh, Carsaloway in July 1937. Source, Oklahoma Historical Society, Indian Pioneer History, Volume 54. And I quote, My name is Moses Lanian. I live in the Ryan Apartments on South 2nd Street, Venida, Oklahoma. I was born in slavery at Salina, Saline District, Cherokee Nation, Indian Territory, July 25th, 1857. My father's name was Jake Ross and my mother was Lydia Ross. They had 10 children, seven of whom were old enough to work in the fields when the war broke out. By the way, references to the war are going to be references to the Civil War. Louise Ross was a Cherokee Indian and owned all the land around Salina, Oklahoma, for a distance of three miles square up and down Grand River, including the old salt wells, and was considered a very rich man. He was a brother of John Ross, first chief of the Cherokees, and they came here with the Eastern Emigrant Cherokees. Louise Ross also had a lot of land across Grand River on the west side of the river and had many hogs, cattle, horses, mules, and oxen. He had 150 slaves, 75 of whom were work hands. Sometime before the war, I was too young to remember the date, Louis Ross went to Bentonville, Arkansas and paid $1,500 for my father and his family. He purchased him from a white man by the name of Lanian. He brought him to Selena and put him in as an overseer of the salt works, which he was operating. There were several big salt wells that were pouring salt water out at the top of the ground, and they bought some huge pots that looked like an ordinary boiling pot for clothes with a handle on each side and which were an inch or more thick to get the water. They operated salt wells in the wintertime and farmed in the summer. It took a lot of wood to keep the pots boiling, and some of the slaves 
or kept busy cutting wood while others were boiling the salt water down until nothing but pure salt was left in the pots. The salt was coarse, but good and strong. The salt was placed in sacks and sold. There was no other salt works in the Cherokee Nation, and people came there from all parts of the Cherokee Nation and bought their supply of salt. Huge furnaces were made for the salt pots, and no one was allowed to come near them for fear of getting scalded or burned. No children were allowed to come near, and if we children came too close, we were whipped and sent home. Louis Ross lived in a large brick house, which stood where the old Cherokee Orphan Asylum School burned down before statehood. His son, Dr. Robert Daniel Ross, lived in another brick building further east, just up the hill from the big spring that furnished them water. Dr. Ross had the water piped from the big spring into his house using lead pipes, which the Indians dug up during the war and molded into bullets. In 1872, after the death of Louis Ross, his heirs sold the entire estate to the Cherokee Nation to be used as an orphan asylum for the Cherokee children, paying $28,000 for it. Slavery in any culture, at any point in time in history, is a complicated thing. Um, human beings have multiple layers, and we are really, really good at oppressing each other. <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, Tom and I were just talking about this before we came on the podcast. Um, and American human beings, whether they were native or uh, of African descent or anywhere in between, were just as good at oppressing each other as any other human beings on the planet. When you read these narratives, um, not only from Moses Lanian, but from any of the other um, 27 slaves and ex-slaves interviewed for this book by Patrick Mingus. When you read these, um, these narratives, as we're going to read some of them on the podcast today, you realize about just how complicated and layered human beings are, and just how complicated and layered slavery as an act in the United States was, just as it was complicated and layered in every other human civilization throughout time. There's a lesson for leaders here, and it is a lesson of meaning. It's also a lesson of treating people as individuals. And at an even grander level, a grand narrative kind of level, it is a, it is a lesson of integrating things, integrating ideas and experiences, integrating personality and history. And going through that integration process is very difficult. And sometimes as leaders, we have to take people through that process within their own narrative. We have to listen to it. We have to honor it. But then at a certain point, we have to move beyond it so that we can move into whatever the next thing is for our team, our organization, our culture, or even our families, our communities, and even our nation state. Welcome, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to break this one down a little bit. Um, I guess maybe the first thing, and I kind of kind of bring the book to you fresh um, here. Um, so just some initial thoughts. Um, what do you know about the integrations between African-Americans and Native Americans in America? Um, and, and what do you know about those overlaps? And uh, just what are some of your thoughts um, around this topic? And by the way, these narratives, 
came out of um, the the five nations um, that were part of the that were part of the <laughs> the move. <laughs> the Trail of Tears. The yeah. fort, right? It's mentioned in the book the the, the forced migration by Andrew Jackson um, of Native Americans from South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, um, west um, into places like Oklahoma, Kentucky, Tennessee uh, during the course of the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, and on into the 1850s. So um, give us a little background on what you know about this and we'll, we'll kind of jump off into this a little bit here. Well, for, first thing I'd like to mention, just, just as a mention, because you mentioned Andrew Jackson. Um, so Andrew Jackson is, is the president that signed the Indian Removal Act. However, he was not the most, um, uh, let's see, more natives actually moved under Van Buren than than, uh, okay. than 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 Jackson. I actually had this conversation with a history professor uh, here in New England. Just to give some people some background, if you don't remember, I I, I am of native descent and I, I live here in, in New England in the United States in, in the New England area. I work a lot with the local colleges and universities, some of which you may have heard of, like you know Brandeis, Bentley, Harvard University, things like that, uh, Brown. And you know I've, I've had these conversations with them because I just give you an idea. I was asked once that, you know, because Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act and Van Buren was the one really to enforce it, if I had to pick only one to put on trial for those atrocities, which one would I pick? And I could never really answer it, honestly, because if I had my druthers, I'd pick them both. Let's fire right. let's, yeah. you know, let's just shoot them both. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm kidding. Not shoot them both, but you know what I mean. Yeah. If, if we're going to vilify, then vilify both of them. But I was not given that option. I had to choose one or the other. So it was really, a, 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 you know, a, um, an exercise of, of will on my part. Who do I blame? The person who thought it up or the person who put it forth? Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I picked Van Buren because he had at least had the he had the opportunity to right a wrong and chose not to and went mm -hmm. forward with it anyway. Now, that being said, to go back to your question. So. I'm relatively familiar with with it, uh, with and and mostly the 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 migration, you know, and then the forced movement of it. How all of that happened, which is another story for another day. But how how they were able to really get that done is is another lesson in U.S. history that that people should pay attention to. But um, but where the integration came from, quite honestly, if you think about it, in the 1830s and 40s, slavery was essentially at its peak at that point, and you know, we had the Underground Railroad starting and all this other start, stuff happening. At the same time, you see this massive exodus of Native people in this, in this, you know, trailing of people going. And that, I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to think of myself, how there's strength in numbers, protection in numbers. If I'm a slave running away and I see this massive people going, why wouldn't I just join them if I felt that was going to be a safer route than trying to get all the way north, right? Like right, you're, right. you're going to be the, the what you're going to face going from, say, South Carolina to Maryland or, you know, New England, Boston or whatever, mm -hmm. the trials and tribulations you're going to face through that when you come up and you see, I'm just going to go with these guys because, and the thought at the time would be, we don't know where they're going, but there's so many people here that when, once we get there, we're going to create our, our own future. Right. Uh, I can see where that would be a, a, a you know, a, a benefit. There's also the other direction, by the way. So there was Native people who were on that trail who fled to the Florida Everglades mm -hmm. and met up with, again, runaway slaves there and decided we're just going to start our own 
our own thing. Like, so, yeah. you know, um, where 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 the you know black people and native people kind of start and stop in certain areas of the country are very hard to 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 really identify. But I would say that a lot of it starts from that trail of tears, from that trip that that exodus of native people, and the idea and thought that there was going to be a better that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, at least for slaves, not necessarily from native people because they were being pulled from their homeland, but from the slaves' perspective, I could see where it would be a like an uh you know it, it would look beneficial to them right because mm-hmm. they're going at least they're not slaves they're they're going to be put someplace where they can do their own thing on their own land mm. i'm just going to go join them so mm-hmm. uh yeah i i can i i think that i think part of it um and and i think that those and, and just to give you an, another perspective in, in most of the writings that i have read native people by nature were not really um, I don't want to use the word racist. I don't mean it that way. We were relatively welcoming to anybody who was willing to be helpful and participate in, in the community, right? So it wasn't mm-hmm. like we didn't care if you were black, white, red, brown, didn't matter. If right. you came to if you came to a native village and you said, I'm here to help, I'm here to work, I'll I'll do whatever you want me to do. We were pretty welcoming. So when when slaves or or even freed black people decided that they wanted to, you know, live that lifestyle or live our way. We were relatively welcoming. We didn't really look at it from a color of skin perspective or as a matter of fact, we if you read back far enough in history, there were there were white captives in the very early part of our country in the 16, 1700s. Native people would capture them. And they didn't want to leave like yeah. captured people <laughs> would say. I don't want to go back to that life. I'd rather just stay here. Right. Right. You know, you know, and so, so there was, so there wasn't, there was, there was a lot of interaction, interrate, intermarriaging, inter, like there's a lot of that happening because we didn't have that thought of, well, they're a different race. They're a different color. We, we don't want them involved. We didn't yeah. have that. So I think that there was some of it that, that was that I think, you know, there's also some, some you know of that the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing that happened quite a bit as well mm-hmm. um you know because the, you know native people from the very beginning weren't exactly fond of you you know the united states government and right. i mean there's a lot of native people today that still aren't very fond of the united states government so i'll just go on a limb and say that that probably hasn't changed in 300 years <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but but there is Still to this day, some validity to the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, I think that happens a lot, and I think people are are willing to accommodate each other because of stuff like that. Well, and it's interesting because on the episode we just we just did we just released with um, we're talking about uh, W. B. Du Bois' um, Souls of Black Folk. Um, the our, our co-host on that episode, um, Darolo Nixon, um, is very much. Uh, uh, engaged with um, the amateur pursuit of genetic anthropology um, and tracing his ancestry to, um, to to Africa, to West Africa, um, and finding interesting things in the genetics, um, the genetic structure, the genetic code um, that indicates um, that, and, and the joke in the Black community is that there's always some Indian floating around somewhere. As a matter of fact, the um, <laughs> 
the author Zora Neale Thurston or Zora Neale Hurston said infamously, I think back in the 1930s, she clapped back on somebody. She was like, I was the only black woman in the room whose mother wasn't an Indian princess. <laughs> and so like, there's always, uh, and even my grandmother, um, you know, uh, taught, you know, uh, has as it were indicated um before she passed that there was potentially something in my own genetic heritage about that um and i've never explored that um that's not something necessarily that interests me right now at this point in time in my life um but most black people will say in in some way or another there has been intermixing with um with um with uh, with native americans um obviously with whites um and then you know there's a very tiny strain of whatever it is that gives you the skin color, right? Very tiny strain of that, that African, that African, um, that African uh, genetics. And his work in genetic anthropology um, is actually proving that out, weirdly enough. Um, and well, it's so- funny you say that because I, I, I was told by a native elder once that if you can trace your ancestry beyond five generations within the borders of the United States, it's, there's some odd statistic and and your friend i would love to talk to him about this because mm-hmm. i'd like to find out who originally wrote it i'm told that it was somebody from harvard university that did this study that said five generations or more and it's mm-hmm. almost 90 percent likely that you have some sort of native or 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 black blood somewhere yeah. back there somewhere right back like there. yeah 90 plus percent that that's astounding to me well and it's it's Here's how I frame it. Uh, the thing, and again, we were talking about this a little bit before we came on. The thing that has to bind all of us together on this third of the continent, it can't be, it can't be, it can't be ethnicity or race or religion. It can't be that thing because it's too. There's too many opportunities for warfare and strife, interscene, yes. extracene. Um, and you know, if, if you're making war, you're not making babies <laughs> and you're not, you're not moving the, um, you're not moving the society. You're not moving humanity forward. You're not making progress. You're not moving towards, uh, what the constitution promises is a more perfect union, not a perfect one, just a more perfect union. More right? Perfect, yeah. right. Um, you're not behaving in aspirational ways. Um, you're not living out that pursuit as in the Declaration of Independence of life, liberty, and happiness. Like, you know, not that you're going to get happiness, by the way, I want to be very clear on that. You're not going to get happiness. You go pursue it, though. You're going to pursue it. And, and, <laughs> and pursue ensure it. domestic tranquility. That's, right, right, the, right. One, that's, that's the one I like. It's <laughs> correct. Uh, and, and so it is, and I'll say this early, it is a miracle with all of the mixing and the, the nature of human flows across this continent that we only have had one civil war yeah uh, actually yeah, that's a that's pretty um that's astounding pretty bold statement but probably true yeah, yeah. that's that's absolutely astounding and yeah. and don't get me wrong look um you know seven hundred and fifty thousand, and let's be real mostly white people and towards the end of it mostly irish who were getting off the boat we saw this in gangs of new york martin scorsese dramatized this because they couldn't meet the they couldn't meet the um the northern armies couldn't meet the uh the recruitment quotas (laughs) turns out that americans actually do get fed up with fighting fairly quickly not just 10 minutes ago um, and so, you know, mostly Irish guys going in there into brigades and going into places that 
they never seen before and being told point and shoot this way. Um, so I, I think that we've got to get our arms, particularly in our culture nowadays, um, we got to get our arms around some realities and, and, and get some maturity around some of those realities. And part of, part of the narratives and, and part of me bringing this to the podcast today is to, is, is an effort not to, um, not to stir up racial strife or anything like that. Sure. That's please give me a break. The, it's, it's, we, it's, we do enough of that on our own. Right. right, right. <laughs> y'all don't, y'all don't need any help from me. Exactly. It, <laughs> it's to actually, get us to behave in a sober, mature adult manner around this and, and really try to figure out what are the ties that bind um, because we're all too well, mixed together. And, and I think, I think that that is a, exactly what you just said is a great opportunity for me to say something that we were also talking about earlier before mm -hmm. we came onto the podcast, which is I want to get rid of it. I want to get rid yeah. of now. Let me just be crystal clear here. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get rid of black history month because I don't like black history. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get rid of, because I also want to get rid of, Native American Heritage Month in November, but it's not because I don't want Native American history to be told. Mm. I want both of these things to be told 24-7, 365. Right. This is not, this should not be Black History Month. It should be Black History, right. period, right. throughout the course of the calendar. And the same thing with the Native American history. And by the way, you don't see any other, this is, this is the, like, to, to me, this is like just a way for we were talking about the ivory tower earlier too and, and not to get into depths into what we were talking about but we all understand that there are people sitting in the ivory tower that think they're better than everybody else and i don't care what color they are they're mm -hmm. every race creed and color in that ivory tower right the fact of the matter is they still think they're better than us but the way that they keep continuing to do that is to keep us segregated like that right That's like right. You, you don't see jewish heritage month or irish heritage month or you don't see any of those you see black history month and native american heritage month because our two races are the two that need to be suppressed the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're giving us something to make us think we have something, but they're not giving it all the way, which I, it just frustrates me, right? Like I just get really frustrated by this. Well, and that's the, that's the two-step, right? I mean, that's the two-step. And so it forces you into a space where either as a black person or as a native person, uh, you're either forced to either address it or ignore it. <laughs> there's no, there's, it's, it's this weird binary where there's no gray area in between. Um, or if there is a gray area, um, you are then in a space where you're stepping into a field of minds, not a minefield, a field of mind. <laughs> yeah. And, and we were even talking about how it's our own people that do this, right? Oh, like, yeah. Because yeah. it's like a 50-50 shot, whether you meet a, a Native person that is that loves November or hates yep. it. And I'm sure that you have the same oh, thing. Yeah. I, you know, I've met plenty of, you know, black people that love black history month and plenty that don't, they, they don't understand why it's one month, which is the, the side of the coin I fall on. Yeah. I want well, it to be all year round. I just, well, I want all of our history to be all year round. It's the side of the coin that Morgan Freeman falls on. So, I mean, you got the voice of God on your side. So I think you're fine. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, how could you fight that? Right. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I remember that interview because that's that's one of the things that 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 prompted me to think about it, which was mm -hmm. the, the the gentleman that he was interviewing uh, mm -hmm. with happened to be Jewish. And he yep. flat out asked him, do you have a Jewish history month? And the guy said, no. He's like, do you want one? He goes, no. Why? I'm like, exactly. Like, right. <laughs> well, and, 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 and we're. We're in a weird cultural moment, so. 
right now because of the nature of cultural anxiety that we have in America and leaders can feel this, everybody can feel it. We're in a moment of cultural anxiety. And these moments come about once every hundred years or so, uh, sometimes once every 80, but usually once every 80 to hundred. And they are moments of great change. So the last one of these moments um, occurred between the 1930s and the 1950s. And then things, I mean, with the exception of a few bumps here and there, and yes, I am calling the civil rights movement a bump, uh, with the exception of a few bumps here and there, it was pretty chill, right? Um, and then you get to the next 80-year turning. And we're in that moment right now. We're in that 20-year that cycle of the 80-year turning. And every single time that happens, there are usually disruptions, usually there are riots, usually there are things burning down. Um, if you talk to average individuals, they don't have a language to describe what's going on. If you go back and read the letters or the narratives of folks who lived during those times, they can sense that something is shifting, but they're not quite sure what it is. Um, and to a larger point on this podcast, this is why we do this. You know, I do believe fundamentally that people's decisions over the course of the next 15 years, regardless of what container you come in, your decisions over the next 15 years are, are hugely crucial. Um, and in order to get this turning to go in the right direction, uh, we, we have to be aware of our history, but not bound by it, right? Not, yeah, not shackled by it, right? Um, and it is time perhaps to throw off the shackles of, well, if we're going to throw off the shackles of at least one social construct, let's, let's go ahead and throw off the shackles of race. Because that's just a social construct. Right? Absolutely. It's a, it's a man-made boundary, right? Right. So there we it's go. A, it's a, it's a human-made boundary. I, I agree. Um, well, I, I did mention the author, Patrick Mingus, and I want to talk a little bit about him because he, um, the literary life of Patrick Mingus. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of his introduction that he wrote, because he brings up some interesting things um, here. Now, the author um, worked for 17 years uh, for Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. While pursuing his doctorate at Union Theological Seminary, he became interested in the struggles of the Cherokees in the South. He is the author of Slavery in the Cherokee Nation, The Kitoa Society and the Defining of a People, 1855 to 1867. As a result of that work, right, um, he began to pursue a side project um, that was included as part of the Real Voices Real History series. And he writes um, in the introduction to uh, Black Indian Slave Narratives, uh, this, this, uh, this piece right here that I want to read. With the introduction of African slavery in the early 17th century, there was a gradual transition from the enslavement of Native Americans to the use of non-Native slaves. For many years, though, African Americans and Native Americans shared a common experience at the hands of slavery. Increasingly, the cultures of both peoples began to reflect their influence upon one another, to Tom's point. Much of what we understand as African American culture may have been influenced by Native American traditions. Africans and Native Americans intertwined in complex ways in the early Southeast, and the emerging culture reflected the blending of the two. As much as anything, these narratives are an examination of the dynamic interaction of the cultures and how historical and cultural roots provided continuity within a tragic and complicated relationship with the institution of slavery. No sooner had the colonies broken away from Britain than they set upon the program for the pacification and the civilization of the indigenous peoples of the American frontier. A critical element in this program 
was the conversion of the American Indian economic and agricultural system to that of the European plantation model. Essential to this enterprise was the use of African slaves. By the early years of the 19th century, slavery had taken hold among many of the five nations of the American Southeast. According to John Ridge, the Africans are mostly held by half-breeds and full-blooded Indians who ran their farms in the same style as Southern white farmers. The effects of the civilization program upon people of African-American and Native American descent was profound and undying. Even to this day, the impact of slavery upon the First Nations resonates with a furious intensity. And then to Tom's point to support him on speaking of removal. One of the little known facts of American history is the relationship between slavery and the removal of the American Indians from the Southeast. The complex relationship between American Indians and persons of African descent was troubling, if not threatening, for the American government in the early 19th century. In addition, the removal of American Indians from the lands opened up vast areas of the South for the expansion of slavery. The abolitionist movement sprang from the anti-removal movement of the early 19th century. When the Southeastern Indians were finally removed by force in the late 1830s and made to endure the Trail of Tears, they were accompanied by African slaves and freedmen who, choose to, who chose to cast their lot with the Indians rather than face life in the Old South. To Tom's point about the enemy of my enemy being my friend. The narratives in this volume explore this intricate history from the viewpoints of both of persons both enslaved as Native Americans and enslaved by Native Americans. In viewing history from the underside, we get a unique perspective on the American experience. Two of the most perplexing issues raised in these narratives are the relationship between African Americans and their Native American masters and the very nature of the institution of slavery as it was practiced by Native Americans. It is important to frame the discussion within the context of the slave narratives themselves. The narratives come from the Federal Writers Project of the Workers' Progress Administration. Although some 2,200 interviews were conducted altogether, some 2,200 interviews were conducted in the mid-1930s with former slaves from 17 Southern and border states. The inspiration for the project was a series of interviews conducted by Ophelia Settle Egypt of Fisk University. Uh, the WPA slave narratives were transferred to the manuscript division of the Library of Congress. You can go and read these yourself. In 1972, Greenwood Publishing Company released a 17-volume collection entitled The American Slave, a composite autobiography edited by George P. Rowick. It has since been expanded to a 41-volume effort. I'm sure you can find some of this online as well. Finally, the last point, though many of the interviewees were elderly and their memories had faded, their reflections provide a compelling witness to this period of American history. However, it is also important to understand that with the exception of the Fisk narratives, these were the stories of persons of color as told to white members of their own communities. The ex-slaves are often reluctant to express opinions that would displease their interviewers. Their words were thus colored by the polite sensibilities of a time much different from our own. In addition, the questions presented to the ex-slaves were prepared in advance by WPA officials and were framed within their worldview. Many of the questions sought to solicit information to confirm their opinions about life under slavery. In a survey of the narratives conducted for her article, African and Cherokee by Choice, historian Laura Lovett determined that of the 2,193 narratives, nearly 12% contained some reference to the interviewees being related to or descended from a Native American. It is an interesting coincidence that this is about the percentage of the African-American population within the first civilized tribes from which the bulk of the narratives in this volume originated. Last point. In both the Cherokee and Seminole nations, there are ongoing legal disputes between tribal authorities and the descendants of former slaves over the citizenship of freedmen. Though the matter is complicated by issues of sovereignty and ties of kinship defined by blood politics, these narratives offer evidence of social and cultural bonds between persons of African descent 
and Native Americans that run deep in their collective history. That's from the introduction to Black Indian slave narratives. Just want to sort of frame the book for you a little bit before we jump back into it. By the way, um, if you are uh, wondering what WPA means, so I'm going to go through a little bit about this. So the um, the WPA was a series of projects that were, oh, not a series of projects, it was a government agency that designed a series of projects during the course of the 1930s um, in order to employ artists, writers, um, theater folks, um, and in some cases, um, people who could not get a job during the course of the Great Depression. And so basically what the Roosevelt administration did was they created this department and you could apply for a job with this department and then go out and basically work and get paid. Um, the w WPA projects included everything from pouring concrete in bridges all the way to interviewing people out in Oklahoma to collect historical narratives. Um, and it was one of the greatest examples in American history of sort of working for money for the government. And a lot of those programs were discontinued at the end of World War II. So that's just a little historical framing for these um, interviews. I'm gonna read this next one from Cora Gillum. Uh, she was interviewed in Little Rock, Arkansas by WPA field worker, Beulah Sherwood Hag. Source, WPA Slave Narrative Project, Arkansas Narratives, Volume 2, Part 3. And I quote from Cora, I've never been entirely sure of my age. I have kept it since I was married and they called me 15. That was in 66 or 67. Anyhow, I'm about 86. And what difference does one year make one way or another? I lived with master and mistress in Greenville, Mississippi. They didn't have children and kept me in the house with them all the time. Master was always having a bad spell and taken to his bed. It always made him sick to hear that freedom was coming closer. He just couldn't stand to hear about that. I always remember the day he died. It was the fall of Vicksburg. When he took a spell, I had to stand by the bed and scratch his head for him and fan him with the other hand. He said that scratching pacified him. No, ma'am. Oh, no, indeedy. My father was not a slave. Can't you tell by me that he was white? My brother and one sister were free folk because their white father claimed them. Brother was in college in Cincinnati, and sister was in Oberlin College. My father was Mr. McCarroll from Ohio. He came to Mississippi to be overseer on the plantation of the Warren family where my mother lived. My grandmother on my mother's side was full-blooded Cherokee. She came from North Carolina. In early days, my mother and her brothers and sisters were stolen from their home in North Carolina and taken to Mississippi and sold for slaves. You know, the Indian folk could follow trails better than the other kind of folk, as she tracked her children down and stayed in the South. My mother was only part Negro, so was her brother, my Uncle Tom. He seemed all Indian. You know, the Cherokees were peaceable Indians until you got them mad. Then they was the fiercest fighters of any tribes. You see, the Warrens, what my own mother and the Johnsons were all sort of one family. Mistress Warren and Mistress Johnson were sisters and owned everything together. The Johnsons lived in Kentucky, but came to Arkansas to farm. Now, Master Tom taught his slaves to read. They say Uncle Tom was the best reader, white or black, for miles. That was what got him into trouble. Slaves was not allowed to read. They didn't want him to know that freedom was coming. No, ma'am. At any time, a crowd of slaves gathered, overseers and bushwhackers came and chased him, broke up the crowd. That Indian and Uncle Tom made him not scared of anybody. He had a newspaper with latest war news and gathered a crowd of slaves to read when peace was coming. White men say it done get to uprising among the slaves. 
A crowd of white gather and take Uncle Tom to jail. 20 of them say they would beat him to each man till they so tired they can't lay on him. One more lick. If he's still alive, then they hang him. Wasn't that awful? Hang a man just because he could read. They had him in jail overnight. His young master got wind of it and went to save his man. The Indian and Uncle Tom rose. Strength, big extra strength seemed to come to him. First man would open that door. He leaped on him and laid him out. No white man could stand against him in that Indian fighting spirit. They were scared of him. He almost tore that jailhouse down, lady. Yes, he did. His young master took him that night. But next day, the white mob was after him and had him in jail. Then listen what happened. The Yankees took Helena and opened up the jails. Everybody's so scared, they forgot all about the hangings and things like that. Then Uncle Tom joined the Union Army, was in the 54th Regiment, United States Volunteers, colored, and went to Little Rock. My mama come up here. You see so many white folks loan their slaves to secessioners to help build forts all over the state. Mama was needed to help cook. They was building forts to protect Little Rock. Steel was coming. Uh, editor's note, Steel refers to Major General Frederick Steele of the United States Army. The mistress was kind. She took care of me and my sister while Mama was gone. It was while she was in Little Rock that Mama married Lee. After peace, they went back to Helena and stayed two years with the old mistress. She let them have the use of the farm tools and the mules. She put up the cotton and seed corn and food for us. She told us we could work on shares, half and half. You see, ma'am, when slaves got free, they didn't have nothing but their two hands to start with. I never heard of any master giving a slave money or land. Most went back to farming on shares. For many years, all they got was their food. Some white folks were so mean. I know what they told us every time when crops would be put by. They said, why don't you work harder? Look, when the seed is paid for and all your food and everything, what food you had just squares the account. Then they take all the cotton we raise, all the hogs, corn, everything. We was just about where we was in slave days. That matches what was in Up From Slavery. That backs up what Booker T. Washington said right at the beginning of his book when he talked about uh, the things that he saw um, occurring in the South um, post-slavery. So I'm not familiar with what happened with a lot of um, the Cherokee Nation um, when they arrived in Oklahoma. Um, I, I mean, yes, I live in Texas right now. I've driven through Oklahoma maybe twice in my life. Um, I know that there are a lot of, uh, there are numerous reservations in Oklahoma, but I am ignorant as to the nature of life for the Cherokee in Oklahoma, um, or quite frankly, in any of the border states. Um, is there is, is there any information that you could give to enlighten me or any place I need to be looking to get enlightenment on this? Well, I mean, there you, you can absolutely look up books and stuff like that. And there's there's been a lot written about, um, you know, the death rates went up and life was way more difficult, way harder. I mean, you got to think about it. I mean, you you said you've driven through Oklahoma, right? Oh, yeah. They don't call it the Dust Bowl of America for nothing, right? Like, oh, yeah, like, it's, it's, yeah. It's very hard to grow anything there. It's very hard. Oh, yeah. You got to remember that the, the Cherokee people were considered the first, basically the first civilized tribe, right? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, historically, anyway. Now, just about every native <laughs> just about every Native American across the country will tell you that they were all civilized, but <laughs> The one that was first recognized by the U.S. government because they had somebody translate their syllables into mm -hmm. into language. They had like they they really tried to assimilate their culture to be identifiable as a society to the English and the and like in the Europeans coming over, right? So right. they wanted to they didn't want to change their culture. They just wanted it, it to resemble the culture of Europe so that they yeah. they could communicate better, make better treaties and all that other stuff, right? So they were considered yep. the first civilized tribe. When you take somebody and, and you knowing what the 
landscape of North Carolina and that area of our country is to the difference of Oklahoma, right. you're essentially taking a fish and putting them in the in in in, in the desert. Like yeah. you're taking people that they have no idea how to work the land. They don't know anything about it. The the poverty levels went through the roof. The death tolls went up. The 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 longevity of life went down. So people were living shorter lives. Like it was it was really the the atrocity was not simply the move, which mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people died along the way. It wasn't just a lot of people. I think in the American uh, society, like especially today, they think of the Trail of Tears being the atrocity, the actual movement that. Ah, the whole thing like once they got there you're taking you're putting people in in into a place where they have no idea what to do mm-hmm. and expecting them to live right so yeah it was it, it it's i mean today's a little different obviously after a century and a half of of you know of living there but you also have a a, a separate kind of divide where there were a particular band of Cherokee that decided they weren't going to go. They hid in the mountains. They they went to places where, so now you have the Eastern band Cherokee that feel like they're the original Cherokee. And then you have the Cherokee in Oklahoma, the Western band Cherokee. That is another conflict for another day too. But, but again, the idea is you took a people that were living in a very lush green environment, very, uh, very habitable, very, uh farmable like i mean that, think about it, that's where i mean north carolina south carolina our cotton fields down there were tremendous tobacco fields down there grew mm-hmm. like crazy and then you're taking them to, and you're basically putting them in the desert right <laughs> you're just, yeah it's yeah it, it's uh you know and and again that now mind you i personally i think it impacted both races that way too because yeah. you took slaves from that environment that i think if you just took slaves from that environment and said Here's your own land. Go work it. I think they would have been okay. I'm not saying they would have been great. Uh, yeah, please yeah. don't take that. But they would have at least known how to work the land. Right. Now, whether they got screwed over in business practices, I'm sure that would have happened. But I'm saying they would have been. But then you're taking the, the same people that some of them. They, that was the only land they ever knew, right. and they, you're moving them out there into the west, in, into Oklahoma, where it's just. Uh, I, I I couldn't even imagine that happening today, which I know oh, it no. does. I know it's been it's been happening around the world, but I couldn't imagine that happening in the United States today. No, and anybody no. being okay with it? No, 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 no. You'd there'd be a problem. Yeah, um, <laughs> there'd be a big problem, and I'm understating it to the the maximum possible degree. Um, were there any, or is there any? And again, I'm I'm leaning on your your knowledge a little bit here to, to sort of set up my next question. But um, so anytime you displace people, you're not putting them in a place that's just empty. <laughs> uh, that never happens. Uh, human beings are everywhere. Um, it may be small bands of families or communities, or it may be an entire nation. But literally, human beings are on every inch of this planet with the exception of a few inhospitable places like the Sahara Desert, right? Or, and even there, you know, you got human beings walking back and forth across that thing all the time. Okay. Human beings are everywhere. This is what we do best. We we adapt to everywhere. Um, I studied the Trail of Tears in school when I was a kid. Um, my grandmother um, was, uh, was the daughter of a sharecropper in, um, in North Carolina. Um, and so a lot of family history with, with that kind of, with that space there. 
Um, as a matter of fact, she she would tell me very often that Indians had gone back up into the hills and uh, the Great Smoky Mountains, right, where yeah. like white people couldn't find them. Um, but no, no peoples get displaced to a place of emptiness. It's not like Oklahoma was an empty desert. So who were the tribes that were, or do you know who the tribes were that were there in Oklahoma when the Cherokee were unceremoniously dumped there? So uh, yes and no. You got to remember, by the time the Cherokee were dumped there, we're talking about right around, you know, we had Manifest Destiny in the West Western yeah, Movement. Okay. So yeah. a lot of the Native people that were, that would have called that area home had already been displaced elsewhere. The Punka, uh, the Kiowa, you know, things, you know, things, okay. tribes like Kiowa and Punka. So they they were basically kind of pushed out, quasi pushed out. They they were brought back when they when the uh, the white settlers realized that Oklahoma was a wasteland and they didn't really want it anyway. Which, by the way, if you look up the name Oklahoma, it is actually a native word. It, it means the red land. <laughs> like so, they had every intention of naming it. They're like, oh, it's yours. We're gonna call it the Redland and everything. It's all yours. Like, anyway, oh but but uh, so so the, those a lot of those people were kind of pulled back. Like the, the you know, there's yeah. there's a Kiowa reservation in Oklahoma today in Ponca, and and there's a a couple others. I, I don't mm -hmm. I don't I wouldn't claim to know every one of them, but yes, sure. you're right. There were natives there originally. When the Manifest Destiny starts pushing them out, and then they realize we don't want this, they pulled them back so they can go to continue that push forward. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it's um, yeah, but but yes, there you're right. There were people there, and now now so now you're now you're taking a people like the Kiowa and saying, oh, by the way, we're going to give you your ancestral land back, but you have to share it with these people that were moving from the East Coast, right? Who huh. they had no idea who they were, and they no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like you get kicked out of your house, you come back to your house, and someone else has set up shop in your house, and it's not the people that kicked you out. It's some other people. It's somebody else. That and now you got like deal right, that they gave permission to be there. Now you got to deal with that person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that gets into this this idea that was raised in the introduction of this sort of layering of claims, right? And yeah. the idea of I mean, you talked about Eastern Cherokee versus, you know, I, I guess Cherokee and Oklahoma. I guess would be the appropriate contextualization for that and uh, they think that's the western band western, western band, western western band, cherokee. band cherokee, yeah. okay cool i want to use the right language so western band cherokee eastern band cherokee and then you get into the dynamic of the seminole um and then that dynamic in florida um which i know um a lot of those um those, those tribal uh that a lot of that tribal population clustered along uh the area um uh in um southeastern alabama northwestern florida like in that in that space right there right along the right along the gulf of mexico right um oof. without getting into the nature of tribal claims <laughs> not getting into it too deep anyway um when we inject african americans into that what are the kinds of complications that sort of arise once you do that once that act occurs like how does that I don't I don't understand the concept of and I'll be I'll be honest, I don't understand the concept of it. He brought it up here and I read it um, here um, just now. But um, I don't I didn't know what he meant by blood politics. I didn't I didn't know what that meant. Um, could you so, shed some light on that for us? Well, again, I think there's there's something to be said here about talking about it from a different from a different uh, era, right? Different yeah. timing perspectives, because today 
blood politics is very different than what it would have been in 1830 and 1850 or 18, you know, during the, and, and, okay. and then immediately after. So let, let's just, there's always been this uh, pro and con of whether you are or aren't native, whether you are or aren't black. Again, if you, you could, you could be, you could have both parents have been former slaves, but for you come out looking more white than they do. Oh yeah. If, if mm-hmm. you quote unquote pass for white, which, by the way, everyone, if you can look at the video, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if I if I chose to never, you know, acknowledge my native heritage, nobody would know the know, be the wiser, right? Right. But yeah. when you look like this and you start claiming native heritage, there's a lot of people that will push back on you, going, "Prove it." Now, I, I have this conversation all the time too, because I don't know of another a single race in our country that is asked to prove your if I look like this and I say I'm Italian, mm-hmm. fine. I say I'm Irish, fine. They understand black hair, Irish people have black hair, sure, no problem. French, sure, no problem. I could even go so far as to like uh, go some some Middle Eastern countries like Lebanon. I had a very good friend of mine from Lebanon that looked as white as I did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you and I happen to know uh, JP, oh, yeah. who is mm-hmm. from Chile, looks just right. as white as I do. He's, he's Chilean. He was born in Chile. Right. He's 100% Chilean, right? So, but... When when he tells you he's Chilean, you never thought to say, could you prove it? Because you're you look white. You don't look Chilean. You look white. Can you prove that you're French? Like nobody ever says that, but they say it to native people all the time. Hmm. Now, here's a, a real weird uh, dynamic that I find I find fascinating. But if you look the way you do and you said you were native, if you and I were in a room together and I, again, I'll, I'll play Devil's Mm -hmm. advocate here. I'll say Harvard University because I've been there. I've lectured there. Right. So you and I are standing at Harvard University. We both say we're native. I guarantee you I'm the only one that's going to get asked to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) How does that happen? I I have no idea. I have no idea how that happens, but it just does. Now, that being said, to your point, let me go back to your question. Right. So Mm -hmm. I I know sometimes I talk in a little bit of a circle, but I, I try to come back. The blood politics in the in the early part of the 18, like from the from the mid 1800s on to uh, probably around the 1930s, so maybe the, that hundred years. Most people don't, aren't aware of this, but Native Americans were not considered U.S. citizens. The Fourteenth Amendment gave Black people citizenship as long as you were born here, you were here, or if you were enslaved here. So. By chance, if you came over in a boat in the late 1700s and you weren't necessarily born here, but you were a slave here, the 14th Amendment gave you, that's the citizen, that's the Naturalization Act, right? Mm -hmm. The the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. However, that did not include Native people. The 14th Amendment did not include Native people. We didn't become citizens until 1924 with the the Native American Citizen Act of 1924. So back to the question. Okay. If you needed something from the tribal government, sure, you're a native. Like, oh, yeah, we're native, we're native, we're native. But if you were outside the reservation and you needed something from a local government, then you're black because you're naturalized, you're a citizen. If you said you were native back then, you might not have gotten any help from a, from a local government because you were not a U.S. citizen. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of like these little intricacies that people forget about, which is why... 
and then don't even get me started about the Carlisle schools and having native kids being taken from their, from their. Oh homes. yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, if I look the way you did, no, 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 I'm, I'm black. I'm a former slave. My kids are not native. You can't take them. You did whatever you had to do to protect yourself and your family and your land. So whether you, the, the, the blood politics were, were very muddy. It was very confusing. And it was like, you did not like, and how, and how you're raising your kids. Like you got to tell your kids, like, you know, your, your grandparents were slaves. You make sure you remember that because now you have this, this thing going forward that you can lean on or, and I'm not saying as a crutch, but you would have an identity that would give yeah. you U.S. citizenship. You'd have right. a, an identity that you could lean on to, to, to move yourself and your family forward. Whereas native people didn't get that till 1924. Number one, number two, hold on one last thing. And then you can go. Yeah. The 1924 Act, the 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 Indian Citizen Act, also just gave us citizenship. It did not give us any rights to the U.S. Constitution before that. Meaning, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom, the right to bear arms. None of those were included in that act. We didn't get that till 1968 with the uh, you know the the Native American Bill of Rights Act. So, so when you are a slave intermixed with native. Then I'm sorry. Like I, I, I'd be the same way. I, I, I'm black. I'm, I'm not native. I'm black. Or to me, I'd be, I'm white. I'm just white because I don't want to. I don't want to put myself behind the eight ball right from the start. I said it was layered and complicated, didn't I, folks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get it. And see, it's, it's an onion. I mean, the more you peel it. And the more it makes you cry and it stinks. Um, no, but it, it is because because <laughs> but, I didn't even go. I didn't even go all the way. Like, right. and I won't go. I won't go in detail. But I'm saying 1968, 1972, 1978, 2004. There's all these acts throughout the course of our history, and the latest one in 2004 that still impacted us like that. So, so how does all this get? This is this is now a side jog question. But sure. what the hell? Uh, <laughs> it's my podcast. I can ask a side jog question if I want to. Um, In thinking about all of this, we get into now a little bit more of a level of complication because during the time that this book was written, so this book was published um, in, this book was published by John F. Blair out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina in, ironically enough, 2004. Um, I have lived in areas of the country where, particularly in New York, upstate New York, um, uh, not Minnesota, uh, Louisiana, uh, when I went to when I went to high school, Louisiana, where, oh, oh, and I see advertisements on television here in um, where I live in 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 Texas. I won't give the specific geographic area, but where I live in Texas, I see advertisements for this, um, for casinos and gambling. And usually these casinos, um, at least the ones that I've seen advertised are either on riverboats, if you're in Louisiana, um, on the Mississippi River or in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Um, or they are on reservations. Uh, money always, <laughs> talk about money, money always complicates things. And so how much of this in your knowledge and experience uh becomes complicated by the insertion of the ability for tribes to build casinos on their land and then pull people in 
uh, how much of that complicates things how much of that makes things even muddier based on yeah. who gets the money who doesn't get the money that kind of stuff who who gets the funds who gets how is it distributed those kinds of things well, because you sometimes see it as a subplot to certain types of shows. Yeah, true. Television, yeah. Um, but I don't. I, I, you know, television is not reality. It, right. Reflection, yeah. maybe, of some kind of reality, but for the most part, television is fantasy. So, how much of this is really an issue, or is it really more of a matter of, like you said, nineteen twenty four, I didn't know about any of this, but nineteen twenty four, nineteen sixty eight, nineteen seventy two, two thousand four. Let's start getting the rights that we need to get because we're still in this long existential struggle with, you know, the descendants of European colonialists. I gotta be, uh, that's a loaded question. It is very loaded. (laughs) I think, I think think the simplest way to answer this though, and, and, and to not get into another, like another one hour discussion about just the, the, the impact of, um, you know, of gambling and, you know, all all this other stuff. Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm just I asking think, about the nature of it actually being there, and then how yeah, yeah. because money always makes people funny. That's basically my core. Right. Core I was gonna say, I, I think I think if you look throughout the course of the country and you and you really scrutinize all of these, you know, tribal lands and the casinos, I think there are some that do it exceptionally well, and others that don't. Some of these casinos are, are uh, you know, some of the ones that I drew, have driven by are nothing more than a shack with a couple of card tables in it. I mean, it's really. It's really not. You really shouldn't be calling it anything like, you know, but but then you look at like uh, what Foxwoods and Mohegan, like the Pequot, Mashantucket people did here in New England and Connecticut. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful buildings. They got a wonderful museum that they've they've spent money on the museum. A lot of educational programs. They do a lot of work. You look at what the Seminole people did. Uh, I remember the day uh, that the Seminole people bought the Hard Rock Cafinos, Hard Rock Hotel and Casinos. So the Seminole people own the Hard Rock Cafe and casinos. Interesting. And, okay. And you know, I remember that him standing on the footsteps of uh, of uh, Wall Street on the I forget what the building is, whatever. You know, when mm-hmm. they ring the bell, whatever. Yeah. And the the chief at the time was like, "We're going to buy this country back one casino at a time." So, but there's but if you look at their people, their people are taken care of. The money is distributed properly. They really do a good job on with structure because they've got the and it's their own. It's not. It's not mirrored after any kind of U.S. government. or It's not. It's their own structure and government. The Pequot, the Mashantucket Pequot did the same thing. I think as long, I think that, again, without going to too deep within the onion, sure. I think that if you look at it from its uh, from its totality, there's definitely good and bad. There's good, there's pros and cons. And I think if it's done right, it can really be beneficial to their people. I, I really think that they can do a lot with it. Well, does that get, does that make bloodlines muddy though? Like, yes. is that, okay. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Because, okay. because now you're getting into people who want to be named on the roles, which is where all of our, that's the other thing too. We're the only race in the country that if your name is not on a role and you don't have this number, then you aren't, you're not native. You're not really native. You can't claim your native descent. You can mm-hmm. say, but there's a, there's a whole other dynamic there again, which does not get pushed on any other race or or, or uh, of people. Mm-hmm. So it, it's but yes, it definitely muddies that because now you get say somebody like, let's say I was Mashantucket, right? I'm not, but let's say I was Mashantucket Pequot, and I I just uncovered this and I was so excited. Now I reached out to the Mashantucket government uh, tribal government. They do not give a care about me. 
They would not welcome me with open arms. They would not because it's distribution of funds goes down right. throughout their entire community. Right. The distribution of land goes down because their land, their reservation has a certain amount of land that is entitled to each one of its members. And if you increase the membership, the land goes down. The government, the U.S. federal government isn't going to give them more land because they have more people. They have to divide their current land up amongst their people. Uh-huh. So if you have a plot of land and your family is on that land, you have children, your children can have that land, but they're not dividing it. They're get, right. They get that They get that plot of land. Now, I come in as not being a tribal member, and I want to become a member because I just found out that my grandmother lived there, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Sorry. Thanks, but no thanks. You can't really do that. Now, they. you can petition the tribal government to allow you in. They can, but it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it, it really is. I think... To be, and again, without getting too political about this, I think that is the ultimate slap in the face to Native people, is that you are required, if you want to claim, if you want to say, if you want to go out to the public and say you're Native, you're required to show this card with a number on it to prove your authenticity. And in order to get this card, you know, it's just baffling to me that we are the only people that have to to Hmm. do this. Well, and it's, it's, I have, I have a stepfather I am not Jewish, but I have a stepfather yeah. who's Jewish. Right. And I said to him one day, uh, his name is Joe. And I said, Joe, I go, uh, I just got a question for you. What happened to the last time a people were forced to put a number on them? This is not going to end well. I'm sorry. It, something is going to happen where this is not going to end well, because it never does. You have, you know, Black people in the slave trade were, were branded or numbered or something so that they could prove that they were that they belonged to somebody. They were owned by somebody else. The Jewish people during the Holocaust were tattooed with numbers so they could prove that they were Jewish. And they had they had to go. So now we are given these numbers. I'm sorry, but this is a, something bad is going to happen here. Well, and it's not. <laughs> I didn't mean yeah, to that, derail you. No, 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 no. You, you have not. You've actually, <laughs> this actually ties into something we talked about um, almost consistently, bang the drum on last year um, when we were talking about um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and um, and uh, the Gulag Archipelago. Huh. Um, you're right. Like anytime, anytime you're numbering people for any reason, to track them because that's the only point of numbering people there's no other point to it you're you're playing around the edges you're 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 playing footsie huh, with tyranny that's what you're doing exactly right um and and i had somebody i had somebody once tell me well no th- that's no different than your social security card and i went no 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 very different because everyone has a social security card including the people in power well, and I'm not I'm not real high on the social security cards anyway, but we'll leave that aside for just a second. We'll aside. But, but, essentially, but it is different, though, because now yeah. as a Native American, I have to have a social security card to identify my U.S. citizenship status and a Native card to identify what tribal nation I belong to. Right. It's, yeah, that's that's not nuts. Okay. That's nuts. Yeah. Um, and I did not know that until about 10 seconds ago. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's nuts to me. Um, wow. OK, no, it's it's. It's this footsie. It's this. You can't. You can't do that. And quite frankly, um, 
with the nature of how overlapping everything is in this country, it would seem to be self-defeating. Um, yeah. You know, it would seem to be a self-defeating practice um, and something that needs to be ended. To, to For sure. Such as it were. Um, I'm going to read one more passage from, um, from the book here. Um, but as we're, as we're sort of beginning to turn the corner a little bit, uh, in thinking about the nature of the, the politics of this and the, the dynamics between um, African-Americans and Native Americans, um, in thinking about uh, folks of European background, and again, I want to be very, very clear here, um, folks of European background, the vast majority of whom emigrated to this country um, after 1860, between 1860 and 1880, the majority of those folks never held a slave once. Not once. Poland, Ireland, uh, Italy, uh, the, the, the folks who, I mean, you know, the folks who are, you know, in, um, in, uh, in, in New York's Little Italy, uh, the folks who are in Boston's Italian neighborhoods, those folks never held a slave once. Uh, and this is where, and this gets back to something that I said on our reparations, on our episode where we talked about W.B. Dubois and we brought up the subject of reparations. This is one of the core reasons why I find reparations to be morally troubling. Morally troubling. I'm sure there is a legal justification and potentially maybe even we can have an ethical conversation about it, but it is morally uh, bankrupt to me. Um, you're asking people to pay for something that they did not contribute to. And I don't want to hear about systemic this and systemic that. That's an interesting to me because systems are changed by people and they are changed all of the time. They are not what they originally were. We can harken back to it. We can try to get back to it, but invariably, almost under the weight of its own power, institutions move forward. And so we have to respect that moving forward. We have to respect what came before, but we also have to respect how that is moving forward. Um, and again, continuing to work towards a more perfect union. Back to the book, back to Black Indian slave narratives. Well, we're going to pick up with, um, well, I want to read this one. And um, some of these narratives, uh, many of these narratives are written in the vernacular um, of the times from which these folks came, right? And so, um, the, the ones that I've read, the couple of ones that I've read, the language seems the language seems a little bit cleaned up. Um, that's potentially because it was because the WPA interviewer may have inter may have uh, cleaned up that language, right? Sure. But then you have some of these interviews where the language is not cleaned up, and um, and it's raw, uh, and it's broken English, and it's it's well, they 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 say words and talk about concepts that would, uh, to, Patrick's, uh, to Patrick Mingus, the author's uh, point at the introduction, um, would offend our modern sensibilities, even back in 2004. Um, but it is real because these people lived these lives. This is, this is actual history speaking to us. So I want to read this one from Lucinda Davis, <clears throat> her interview. I'll read a little bit of her interview. Um, Lucinda Davis was interviewed in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by WPA field worker Robert Vincent Lackey in the summer of 1937. Source, WPA Slave Narrative Project, Oklahoma Narratives, Volume 13. Uh, she started off her interview by singing a song 
What are you going to do when the meat give out? What are you going to do when the meat give out? Set in the corner with my lips pooched out? Mozzie. What are you going to do when the meat come in? What are you going to do when the meat come in? Set in the corner with a greasy chin. Lawsy. That's about the only little, and here we go. That's about the only little nigga song I know. Unless it be the one about great big nigga laying behind the hog. Finger on the trigger, eye on the hog. Click go the trigger and bang go the gun. Here come the owner and the buck nigga run. And I think I learned both of them before I've been grown because I belong to a full blood Creek Indian. And I didn't know nothing but Creek talk to long after the Civil War. My mistress was part white and don't English talk, but she never did talk it because none of the people talked it. I heard it sometime, but it sounded like a whole lot of wild shooting the sea to break, scared of something when I do hear it. That was when I was a little girl in time of the war. I don't know where I've been born. Nobody never did tell me, but my mammy and pappy get me after the war and I know then whose child I is. Them men at the Creek Agency helping get me, I reckon maybe. First thing I remember is when I was a little girl, I belonged to old Tuskegee Hen and I. He was a big man in the Upper Creek, and now we are a pretty good-sized farm, just a little bit to the north of the Wagon Depot house on the old road in Honey Springs. That place about 25 miles south of Fort Gibson, but I don't know nothing about where that fort is when I was a little girl at the time. I know that the Elk River about two miles north of where we live, because I've been up there many times. I don't know if old master have a white name. Lots of Upper Creek don't have no white name. Maybe you have another Indian name, too, because Tuskegee Hen and I mean headman warrior in Creek, but that would everybody call him, and that would the family call him, too. My mistress's name was Nancy. She was a lot before she married old man Tuskehanan and uh, her pappy's name was Lot and he was pretty near white. Maybe so all white. They have two children, I think, but only one stayed on the place. She was named Lowena and her husband was dead. His name was Walker and he and Lowena bring Mr. Walker's little sister Nancy to live at the place too. Lowena had a little baby boy. That's the reason old master by me to look after the little baby boy. He didn't have no name because he wasn't big enough when I was with him, but he'd get a name later on, I reckon. We all call him Istadigi, that mean little man. When I first remember before the war, old master had about as many slaves as I got fingers, I reckon. I could think them off my fingers like this, but I can't recollect the names. They call all the slaves Istalusi, that mean black man. Old man Tuskegee Ninana was born near about blind before the war. About the time of the war, he'd go plumb blind and have to sit down a long seat under the brush shelter of the house all the time. Sometimes I leave him around the yard a little, but not very much. That about the time all the slaves began to slip out and run off. My own pappy was named Stephanie. I think he'd take that name because he was his little mammy called Estefani. That means a skeleton, and he was a skinny man. He belonged to the Grayson family, and I think his master became master named George, but I don't know. They're big people in the creek, and with the white folks took my mammy, whose name was Serena, and she belonged to some of the Googe family. They was big people in the upper creek, and one of the biggest men in the Googe's was named Ophthala Lehola for his creek name. He was a big man and went to the north in the war and died up in Kansas. I think. They say when he was a little boy, he was called Aptole, which means good little boy. And when he get grown, he make big speeches and they stick on the Yahola. That mean loud whooper. That the way the creek made the name for the young boys when I was a little girl. When the boy get old enough, the big man in the town give him a name. And sometime later on, when he get go around with the grown men, they stick on some more name. If he's a good talker, they sometimes stick on Yahola. And if he make a lot of jokes, they call him Hadjo. Be a good leader, they call him Imala, and if he kind of mean, they sometimes call him Firigo. Now, my mammy and pappy belong to two masters, but they live together on a place. That way, the Creek slaves do lots of times. They work patches and give the masters most all they make, but they have some for themselves. They didn't have to stay on the master's place at work like I hear the slaves of the white people and the Cherokee and the Choctaw people say they had to do. 
Maybe my mammy and pappy run off and get free, or maybe it's so they buy themselves out. But anyway, they move away sometime. And my mammy's master sell me to old man Tuscan Inanna when I was just a little gal. All I have to do is stay at the house and mind the baby. Master had a good log house and a brush shelter out front like all the houses had, like a gallery, only it had the dirt for the flesh and a brush for the roof. They cook everything out in the yard in big pots and they eat out in the yard too. That was sure good stuff to eat and make you fat too. Roast the corn, roast the green corn on the ears and the ashes and scrape off some fry and eat it. Grind the dry corn or pound it up and make ash cake. Then bile, boil, then greens, all kinds of greens throughout in the woods. And chop up the pork and the deer meat or the wild turkey meat, maybe all of them in a big pot all at the same time. Fish too. And a big turtle to lay out on the bank. They always have a pot of soft key sitting right inside the house. And anybody eat when they feel hungry. Anybody come on and visit and give them some of that soft key. If they don't take none, the old man get mad. When you make the soft key, you pound up the corn real fine. Then you pour in the water and drain it off and get all the little skin off in the grain. Then you let the grit soak and then bile and let it stand. Sometimes you put in some pounded hickory nut meats that make it real good. I don't know where old master get the cloth for the clothes. They seem to buy it. Before I can remember, I think he had some slaves to weed the cloth. But when I was there, he'd get all of the wagon depot at Honey Springs, I think. He'd go to all the time to sell his corn, and he raised lots of corn, too. Now, she's going to tell a story here about what happens during a funeral, which I think is worthwhile to point out here. Long in the night, when you wake up and hear a gun go off way off yonder somewhere, then it go again and again, just as fast as they can ram the load in. That means somebody dead. When somebody died, the men go out in the yard and the people let they know why. Then they just get back in the house and let the fire go out. And they don't even touch the dead person to somebody get there that has a right to touch the dead. Then she talks about crazy dances, which I will end with this. When the big battle come to our place in Honey Springs, they just get through having the green corn busk. Now, a busk was a ceremony held after the corn was harvested, usually in the fall. The green corn was rapid enough to eat. Must have been long in July. That busk was just a little busk. There wasn't enough men around to have a good one, but I see lots of big ones. Ones where they had all different kinds of banga. They call all the dances some kind of banga. The chicken dance is the Tolosa banga and the Istifana banga. This one where they make like days of skeletons and raw heads come to get you. The Hajobanga is a crazy dance, and that dance is a funny one. They all dance crazy and make up funny songs to go with the dance. Everybody think of funny songs and sing. Everybody whoop and laugh all the time. But the worst one was the drunk dance. They just dance every which way. The men and the women together, and they wrestle and hug and carry on awful. The good people don't dance that one. Everybody sing about going on to somebody else's house and sleep with them and shout, we is all drunk and we don't know what we're doing. We ain't doing wrong because we is all drunk and all things like that. Sometimes the bad ones leave and go to the woods too. That kind of doing makes the good people mad. And sometimes they have killings about it. When a man catch one of his women, maybe so his wife or one of his daughters, been to the woods, he catch her and he beat her and cut the rim of her ear. People think maybe that ain't so, but I know it is. I was combing somebody's hair one time. I ain't going to tell who. When I lift her off of her ears, I nearly dropped dead. There the rims, cut right off of them. But she was a married woman. And I think maybe so it happened when she was a young gal and got into one of them drunk dances. Them up Creek took to marry and kind of light anyways. If them youngins wanted to be a man and wife and the old ones didn't care, they just went ahead and that was all about all. Set some presents maybe. But the Baptists changed that a lot amongst the young ones. That was not me exaggerating. That is literally how that was written. Because that is how she talked. 
by the way, of course, the Baptists changed it. <laughs> religion changes everything. In particular, the Europeans' religion changes everything. I read that because people forget. People have culture. People have culture. In the gulags and in the death camps of the 20th century, from, huh, from the Soviet Union all the way to uh, the Cambodian death camps of the 1970s, whenever you get people together, they have culture. We are culture-making people. It's what we do in order to survive. Uh, culture creates stories, and stories create life, and life create inspiration, creates moments of inspiration. It gives you moments of hope. At no time have any human beings been collected together, whether in a prison or a gulag, and they have not developed some type of culture, some type of way to celebrate, some type of way to honor, some type of way to get together. By the way, I didn't know what soft key was. Apparently, it's a corn mash kind of uh, kind of gruel uh, that's made with lye, apparently. Um, and, uh, you know, based upon the sourness of it, it determines sort of the level of, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, flavor or taste that, uh, that is, uh, that's in that. So I had, to go, I had to go and look up that. Interestingly enough, on the Oklahoma Historical Society um, page, they actually have the, the definition for that there. Because uh, I'd never heard of soft key before. I didn't know what that was. Uh, people are going to make things, right? They're going to make food that's specific to them. They're going to make um, families that are specific to them or family-like structures. Uh, they're going to engage in, quite frankly, sexual behavior. They're going to, they're going to hook up. They're going to have relationships. Um, we tend to think of slavery in very, again, black and white terms, either is or it isn't. We tend to not think of it in terms of complication. We tend to not think of it in terms of layers of gray. We tend to not think of it in terms of human passion. Uh, Booker T. Washington brought this up when he talked about not having any bitterness in Up From Slavery against the white masters who owned him because slavery changed them for the worse than it changed the ones who were enslaved. He believed that all the way down to his bones. One of the pieces of our time that is hubristic is that we are all atomized and we are all separate. Um, I've been getting a lot of religion on this lately in a different kind of way. And I use religion very purposely when I say this. We have been struck by the libertarian idea that I don't really care what goes on in Tom's house. And I don't really have to because Tom's life is Tom's life and my life is my life. And doesn't really, if it doesn't, <laughs> the classic line, if it doesn't hurt you, why do you care? But that's not the reality of human beings. The reality of human beings is that we do merge together. We do bump against each other. We are not atomized. We are not islands. And that's what literature teaches us, right? No man or woman is an island. We get together. We have soft key. We have dances. <laughs> we try to have sex with each other. <laughs> hey, kids, if you're listening, this is not an episode for you. <laughs> yeah. But we do try, right? We try to make time with each other. We try to have relationships. We try to find meaning with each other. 
We're designed to do that, even under systems of oppression, even under systems that are designed to grind that piece of humanity out of us. There has yet to be a system designed by human beings to grind other human beings down that doesn't allow us to create connections either with each other or even, interestingly enough, with the people who are guarding us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that the worst kind of people that he ran across in the gulag weren't the true believers in communism. It was the prisoners who were overseeing other prisoners. Those were the worst kind of people. In these Black Indian slave narratives, what you see is examples from the three ones, the three narratives of the 17 that we read. And if you go and get this book, and I would encourage you to pick it up, if you want a firsthand look at what culture looks like and what the layers of gray look like in here, what you can see is that even under a system of oppression, people are trying to hold on and are successfully in many cases holding on to their humanities. They are creating a culture. There's never a cultural vacuum. You're going to create something as a leader. You're going to lead people to create something. Um, and that's something is going to be based off of ties that bind. And it might be circumstances. It might be race, although I wouldn't recommend it. It might be gender. <laughs> it might be the way that we speak. It might be our language. Um, it might be our national origin or our ethnicity. But we're going to try to create something. Leaders, the thing that we can take from this book today on our podcast, I think the biggest lesson we can take is not only do we have to be careful of what we create, but we have to know that what we create is going to create a history. And that history is going to have an impact long past and on people that we will probably never meet and well into the future. Tom, any thoughts on this? We are we're, we're wandering towards the end of our podcast. How do we? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that a few that. minutes ago where you said, oh, this will be a quick one. Well, I lied. <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking I was thinking of, of it more from a standpoint of like, uh, you know. Because you also hear stories and I I I. I think the last one you read was alluding to the fact that they were slaves, but didn't feel enslaved, right? Like, yeah. so they were, they had a little bit more freedom than the white owner slaves did than the other people. So I, I think, I think there's a, a lesson to be learned there from a leadership perspective about having your thumb, right? Like being, mm -hmm. putting people under your thumb and that, that um, ha having the, having the ability to allow people to be people mm -hmm. within the confines of the rules, so to speak. Right. Cause you still need, you know, as to, to be considered a society, you have to have rules, right. So to mm -hmm. be considered a company, you have to have rules of your company, but giving people the liberties and the freedoms to have open thought and being able to voice opinions without repercussions. And I think there's a lot of things that you can learn from those types of environments back then that, and, and I remember reading, and I, I, I don't ask me to quote the book, but I remember reading a story from a book similar to that, mm -hmm. that once the, the, the slaves were freed, they didn't want to leave, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. they, they, they were like, and it wasn't the fact that they, 
they wanted to be slaves. They just wanted to stay where they were. The owner treated them well. They had a good life. They they didn't they didn't feel like slaves like their neighbors did, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's I think there's something to be said about uh, about treating your employees with that level of dignity and respect that they don't want to go anywhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Like that it's not about because it's not about money at that point. Like you right. can go make more money at another company or stay where you are and be happy. I'm going to stay where I am. I'd rather be happy than make more money. Yeah. Again, yeah. to each yeah. situation might be a little bit different. I understand right. that, but but there 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 just might be something to be said about about, you know, you know, you pay these people for a service. That's that's why they're your employee, but that does not mean that you get to demean them. That does not mean that you get to look down on them. It does not mean that they don't have opinions. They don't have thoughts and feelings and fears. And and if you look at them from that that human totality, you're probably going to get more out of them than just looking at somebody you pay to do a job and just force them to do that job. Well, and think about the arguments that we have in this country around what the minimum wage is. Yeah. Um, you know, if we're going to be intellectually honest without being emotional, uh, the minimum wage is actually zero. That's the minimum. I mean, if, right. we're going to be economic, if we're going to be economically and intellectually honest. Now, both Tom and myself have served, served, have performed roles in our time that are commission only. And so you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, and when you work a lot, you get paid a lot. And if you work a little bit, you get paid a little bit. But that's kind of the way it goes. Um, most people, 99% of people, um, are, are working for, for working in places where wages are a thing. And thus you get the term wage slave, which is always kind of great graded on me. I never, never really liked that term yeah, um, because a slave by nature of being a slave doesn't get a wage. Right. right. <laughs> Let's be intellectually honest here. So you're not a wage slave. You may not like what you get paid. You may not like the place you work. You may not even like the environment you are in, but you're getting compensated. There's a there's an exchange there. We can we can maybe have a discussion about whether or not that exchange is fair or unfair. Okay, that's a different kind of thing. But there is an exchange going on. You're right. Like leaders have to figure out what kind of system they want to build. And they have to figure out what the rules are going to be and what the boundaries are going to be. Well, and as you mentioned earlier about these systems being created by people and changeability of those systems, like they also have to be interested and willing to listen to their people and be, and the, the there's a possibility that the system you put in place today is not the same one that you, that's tomorrow. That's right. Right. Like that, that, that right. you have the ability to listen, like you have the ability to, to take input from people that you may think are subpar from whatever perspective, from an intellectual perspective, from a whatever it doesn't matter but doesn't matter. You, but they're subordinate to you in some way shape or form in your yep. brain anyway but that doesn't mean that you can't take i i I've, i can't even tell you how many sales I, i'm my background sales and marketing can't tell you how many sales people have trained in my in my career but the one common denominator i tell every one of them is i don't care if you've been in sales for one week one year 25 years i guarantee you i can learn something from you i can I've hired people, you know, that have never had a sales job in their life. And within the first week, they say something or do something that is so different 
that I wouldn't have thought of or didn't think. And I immediately in, it, it implemented it into my own talk track mm-hmm. or into my own, you know, activities because yep. that's the difference. That's the ability. That's the, the change that we can make from, from any perspective is that we have the ability to listen and learn. We have the ability to change what we don't like. We have the ability to improve on something that we think is perfect. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as perfect, right? But, right. but, but something that we view as, as perfect as it's going to get some new person comes along or some, that doesn't mean you can, you can change it tomorrow mm-hmm. to make it better than it is today. That I, I think that's, you know, I think that's some of the common denominators in those stories, right? Is that I am better off today than I was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's because my circumstances changed and I had an impact in that circumstance. With that, I think we're about done here. (laughs) (laughs) For all of us here at the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, (laughs) thank you for listening. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that little red book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership. Co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan, this is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.